No She Didn't is a new podcast produced by a husband and wife team. They focus on the forensic psychology aspect of true crime and criminal investigations. Each week a new podcast will be released on Fridays discussing a true crime case and how forensic psychology played a role in the investigation. It's Alicia from the No She Didn't podcast. I am without my favorite sidekick today because he is currently working on a homeschool project with our boys. So I'm going to be doing this podcast by myself today. So I hope you guys don't mind just hearing me today. Um, I want to take time today also to mention that as we gather information for our podcast, we do gather a lot of information from different sources, um, but some of our main sources are murderpedia.org. It's a really cool website if you want to go out and learn about different cases and things like that, and they put a lot of work into gathering this information, so I want to say thank you to them for the information they provide us. We also use um, some encyclopedias uh, that give us information on specific serial killers. That's how we choose what cases we want to talk about. So I want to give them credit as well for the hard work that they do. So today I want to talk to you about rapist and murderer Scott Thomas Erskine. So Scott is a serial killer and he is convicted to death row for the murder of two California boys. He was sentenced in 1993. He was at the San Quentin State Prison, but when COVID-19 had an outbreak in the prison earlier this year, he actually died along with a few other inmates from COVID-19 complications. So he actually was not put to death by the state. He actually died from complications from COVID-19. So... I want to tell you a little bit about him. Um, his history of abuse is just rampant. He began at the age of 10 years old abusing his sister. But we're going to go back even a little bit further and tell you about something else that happened to him when he was a child that will later come into play. So Erskine actually grew up in Southern California. When he was five years old, he darted into traffic on the Pacific Coast Highway outside of San Diego, he was hit by a station wagon. He remained in a coma for about 60 hours, and although physically he appeared recovered, he frequently complained to his mother about headaches and experienced blackout moments where he couldn't remember what he was last doing. So we know we have that part of our forensic psychology to take into consideration about how he had a traumatic brain injury when he was a child and how we know that those type of brain injuries do alter um, the brains of a normal person. They, Depending on where they were hit, it can actually cause major damage. Um, it can impair decision making, um, all different types of things um, that we you know, having our frontal lobe that helps us to dictate what is right and what is wrong. So, uh, clearly, he is suffering from some issues because at the age of 10, he started molesting his six-year-old sister, forcing her to perform oral sex on him. He soon began abusing her friends, threatening to kill them if they told anybody. At the age of 15, Erskine was in a juvenile detention facility, he escaped, 
He pulled a knife on a 13-year-old girl, and he raped her. And the next morning, he assaulted a 27-year-old female jogger with a knife. So, in 1980, he was on his way to an interview for a camp counselor's position. You heard that correctly. And it makes me just as sick as it does you uh, to know that these are the kind of people that actually pursue those type of careers so that they can have easy access to our children. But Erskine actually beat a 14-year-old boy unconscious during an attempted rape. And what's interesting from this, from the forensic psychology aspect, is that he has changed his victimology. Most serial killers do not do that. They typically stick with either male or female. In this case, he chose male and female. It didn't matter to him what sex the intended victim was. He was only pursuing what he wanted, which was sexual gratification. So, um, he also raped another inmate while he was in prison. Um, Erskine begged the San Diego, San Diego judge at that time to spare him from adult prison. And despite his mother's pleas to send her son to a mental institution, Erskine was sentenced to four years in prison. He was paroled in 1984. So we have to consider that and look at that and go, if he had been put into a mental institution, would he have been kept at the mental institution, you know, for a longer period of time versus going into our jail system and being released uh, on probation, parole, you know, could this have prevented murders from happening? You know, as the judicial system, defining what psychological disorders are is very difficult. Um, you have to have specific criteria to meet a diagnosis of being psychologically impaired to where you don't serve time in prison where you actually get sent to a mental facility and so we just have to ask ourselves you know at some point do we need to send people to mental institutions versus like I said sending them to the jail system and the penalty system to where they can actually be paroled so upon his release Erskine actually met a woman named Deborah he actually dated her off and on and moved to Orlando, Florida with her in 1988. They were married that year, and they had a son named Brandon. So the marriage was brief, and it was dysfunctional, and one can only imagine that that would be accurate. Erskine physically abused his wife, and he even there's a report of him kicking her in the stomach while she was pregnant. She eventually did leave him, and Erskine actually moved back to Southern California. So he went from Florida to Southern California, you know, and so now he's back in Southern California where he very first came from. So he went Southern California to Florida, back to Southern California. So some of these people, they move just back and forth, and it's really difficult to find out where their victim bases were um, unless we have situations like this where they can use DNA evidence to point to that person specifically. So you will find that it's very common in a lot of serial killers. They do move around quite a bit, and that does open up the field for them to be able to choose their victims. And it's really difficult for agencies to piece together because they typically don't talk to each other. But now we have this wonderful system where everything is put in, and you can look for links between cases and 
wonderful and happy to say that that is something that we have grown and we do now versus before in the past. We didn't typically communicate outside of our own jurisdictions, so but we do now. So in 1993, Erskine actually invited a woman who was waiting for the bus to come to his home. She did. And he held her hostage there for several days, and he repeatedly raped and sodomized her before letting her go. So he didn't kill her, so there was a difference there. So he was quickly arrested, he was convicted of rape and kidnapping, and he was declared a sex offender, and he was sentenced to 70 years in prison. Now, as a convicted sex offender, Erskine had to submit his DNA to a database, which we know as the CODIS database. So, in March of 2001, the San Diego Cold Case Squad reopened the investigation of the unsolved murders of 9-year-old Jonathan Sellers and 13-year-old Charlie Kiever. The police had tested cotton swabs found in Charlie's mouth that contained semen. Since it was determined that neither boy was physically mature enough to produce sperm, the semen could only have originated from the killer. The DNA sample was entered into CODIS. And soon they got a hit. The DNA belonged to Scott Erskine. So in September of 2003, Erskine went on trial for the two murders. The jurors were actually shown photos of the crime scene where both boys were killed. Jonathan was at the entrance of a makeshift fort hanging from a castor bean tree branch. He was naked from the waist down. His legs and arms were bound with rope and his mouth was gagged. His genitals showed obvious signs of sexual assault, and a noose was tied around his neck. On the ground was Charlie. His head was resting on a pile of his and Jonathan's clothes. He was also naked from the waist down. Legs and arms were bound. His mouth gagged, and his genitals were bleeding from extensive bite marks. He, too, had a rope around his neck. The pathologist did say that Charlie was alive when the bite marks were inflicted. Erskine's DNA was also found on two cigarette butts found near the bodies. On October the 1st, 2003, the jury found Erskine guilty of murder. However, they could not agree on the sentence. Eleven jurors voted for the death penalty, while one juror insisted on giving Erskine life without parole. The judge declared declared a mistrial on the penalty phase. So in April of 2004, Erskine went before a second jury to determine his punishment for the murder. The jury unanimously recommended the death penalty. So on September the 1st, 2004, a California judge upheld the jury's recommendation and gave Erskine the death penalty, where he was transported then to San Quentin just a few days later. So, while he was awaiting the start of that trial, Florida investigators matched Erskine's DNA in an unsolved case of 26-year-old Renee Baker, who was murdered in June of 1989. He was formally charged in 2003, but didn't get sentenced until August of 2004. Erskine, who did indeed live in Palm Beach County, Florida at the time, admitted to raping and killing Baker and was given life without parole. Baker drowned when Erskine broke her neck and left her near the bank of the Intracoastal Waterway in Palm Beach, Florida. 
Authorities do suspect that Erskine may be linked to other unsolved homicides. So now I want to talk to you a little bit about family statements that were made during the trials. So the boys' mothers actually spoke to Erskine during the trials, but he never even acknowledged them or responded. Instead, he stared straight ahead from the defense table, unflinching and silent, just as he did while the case wound through the courts over the past three years. The mothers pleaded with him to tell them why he killed their boys. They begged him for the boys' last words even. They screamed at him and they cried. Now, Jonathan and Charlie had disappeared March the 27th, 1993, while riding their bicycles along the river bottom of the Otay River in Palm City. A jogger actually found their bodies two days later inside the igloo-type fort that was made of brush. Both had been bound, gagged, and molested. Charlie was lying on the ground and Jonathan was hanging from the tree. Jonathan's mother says, I see my baby hanging from a tree on his knees. I want to know why. Why you did that to him. And I want to know, you know, did he mention God? Did he start praying? Was he crying? Was he asking God to help him? Is that why you put him on his knees? I want to know, were you trying to mock God? Because God is real and you will pay for what you did. God takes it very seriously. The slayings actually horrified the community and triggered a massive investigation that went nowhere for nearly eight years. Then, like we said earlier in 2001, police used the new DNA testing methods to link Erskine to the killings from bodily fluids found at the crime scene. Erskine had held numerous jobs in the 1980s and early 90s while living in the various parts of the country. He was attending business classes at Southwestern College, and he was also employed as a car shuttle driver when the boys were killed. Several months after the slayings of the boys, he was arrested in the rape of a San Diego woman. He was convicted of that crime that I told you about earlier, was serving that 70-year prison term when he was charged in the boys' slayings. So, previously he had pled guilty to the murdering of the woman in Palm Beach, Florida in 1989, and the plea came after an agreement that he would not face the death penalty there, which was something that he did not want. He did not want the death penalty. He wanted life in prison. So, Erskine's lawyers actually argue that his brain was damaged when he was struck by the car at the age of five. They did not contest that he killed the boys, but he asked jurors to recommend that he serve life and not execution by arguing that the injury caused him to lose the ability to curb his sexually sadistic urges, therefore lessening his responsibility. Charlie's mother, Maria Kiever, told Erskine during her family statement what she thought of that argument. She said, I was in an accident when I was seven years old. I was run over by a truck. She was in a coma for two days and hospitalized for one year, she said. And I don't go killing people. That's not a reason to kill people. And I hope someday in jail he gets his life sucked out of him like he did my son. 
Jonathan's older sister, Natasha Sellers, told Judge, so she had been suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder since she was 11 years old. I've been waiting for this moment for half of my life, she said. I didn't know how my brother died until this court proceeding began when I came to find out the horrific way that he was taken from us. When I was 11, I tried to make myself believe that it was quick and that he didn't suffer, but now I know the truth. She was trying to recall some good memories of her brothers, and she said he was funny. He was beautiful. He had big brown Bambi eyes and long eyelashes and a smile that could light up a room. But now, I can't even think about that. Every time I think of my brother, I think of his last moments. I see the autopsy pictures. I can't sleep. I feel like he was cold. He was alone. He was scared. He was just nine years old, and Charlie was only 13. One of them had to watch the other one die, and that was torture. And now we're being tortured for the rest of our lives because they're not with us. For the crimes that you committed on March the 27th, you deserve to die. My brother is dead, Charlie is dead, and you deserve to die. Now I want to take you back a little bit further and we're actually going to talk about the trial that, you know, right, right before the trial, we're going to get into the uh, clues that actually led them to catching Erskine. So, it was actually one of the longest and most intensive and expensive investigations in local law enforcement history. There was an eight-year hunt for the killer of the two South Bay boys. Police actually even exhumed a dead body, pretended to be journalists, consulted experts in Satanism, and took biological samples from hundreds of potential suspects. Yet, throughout their quest... To find the man who molested, tortured, and murdered 13-year-old Charlie Keever and 9-year-old Jonathan Sellers, police received only one accurate tip. It came from a probation officer in 1994, just days after the first anniversary of the boy's death. After a cursory analysis, it was stuffed into a manila envelope and essentially forgotten. Police had thousands of leads, and they believed far better suspects than Scott Erskine. The man cited by the probation officer that he was a low-priority guy. One of the detectives later actually testified to that. For the first time, details of how police went about trying to find the boys' killers were discussed recently in open court. It was a massive and frustrating investigation, and even if they had focused only on Erskine, it's doubtful that they could have made the connection until the DNA testing technology improved many years later. So Erskine was 41 at the time that he was going to be sentenced and presumably sentenced to death. He was convicted the previous year of murdering Charlie and Jonathan after abducting them while they rode their bicycles along the bed of the Otay River. So... What we're going to do now is I want to tell you a little bit about, a little bit more about what happened with this parole officer. So, there was a parole officer that had actually been studying the case. And she noted that there were a lot of similarities in the way that the boys were murdered based on the previous history of Erskine. So, she actually sent this information to one of the detectives and told them, hey, you really want to take a look at this guy. 
So, just like they had said earlier during the trial, they just kind of, you know, thought uh, he's not really, you know, a high priority here. He's low risk. We'll just, you know, whatever. This is just a, another tip that's going to go nowhere. So, they, like they said, tucked it in a manila envelope and went about their day. So, I want to tell you now about the crime scene. So, Charlie and Jonathan actually disappeared after leaving their homes for a bike ride. It was an adventure. And that's what they called the Sunday afternoon outing. They were found, like I said, two days later in the igloo-like fort. Both were naked from the waist down. Both with bound with rope and gagged with tape. Both boys had been molested. And testing would later on show the presence of Erskine's sperm on the boys. So the crime left no witnesses, but yet two devastated families and a South Bay community was in fear. About five months later, Erskine was arrested for an unrelated brutal rape of the San Diego, San Diego woman. And of course, during that time is when he received his 70-year uh, in prison sentence. And so police didn't connect Erskine to the South Bay murders then, and they actually wouldn't for another eight years. So, this is just a really strange case. Um, you know, if we hadn't had the opportunity to have the CODIS system that actually tracks the DNA, it's potential that these cases would have never been solved. So, we have to be so vigilant about making sure that we look at all of the odds and the ends of these cases. And a lot of times it is going to be someone that we don't expect you know, to have done this. So just as we saw earlier, he was someone who was involved in, you know, children's camps and things like that. And so we have to be vigilant with these people and we have to make sure that we're vetting these people, we're checking on them, we're looking into their past. And I know a lot of the juvenile records are covered up and closed and private, but you can still dig further on these people. There could have been someone that could have prevented this from happening hopefully possibly maybe if we had just dug a little bit further and so I want to tell you a situation that also happened with Erskine so there was a time that he actually worked at the Honeywell fireworks stand and he actually had a trailer um that was um about a mile away from the fireworks stand. So, a former co-worker of Erskine's told police that a woman named Renee had frequented the fireworks business. Now, we know Renee's name from us telling earlier that he was convicted for murdering her. Uh, Renee Baker, she was only 26 years old, and he was convicted and had to spend 70 years in prison for that. And so... The co-worker told the police that she that they recognized this woman, Renee, because she frequented the, the fireworks business. So, police showed her a picture, showed them a picture, and they said, yes, we know her. So, Baker's nude body was found face down at the wildlife sanctuary off of the Southern Boulevard Causeway. The official cause of death was listed as assault and drowning. Neatly piled away on the sand, 66 feet away from her body, was Baker's clothing, her sandals, and her purse. It appeared as though she'd been dragged about nine feet from a beach area 
to the Intercoastal Waterway. It took more than a decade, but in 2002, a Marlboro cigarette butt found near the body would point to Erskine as the killer. We do know that he received the 70-year prison sentence. He actually had lured her to his home. He had put her in a chokehold until she passed out, according to the affidavit. He repeatedly sexually assaulted her until she regained consciousness and escaped. DNA testing in that case linked him to the rape and the murder of the San Diego boys. So, this is very compelling to know that without CODIS, we wouldn't have been able to catch this killer. So, like I said earlier, um, we know now that justice was served because he was actually found dead in his prison cell from complications of COVID-19. So... It's a very sad case, and I hated to tell you about this case, and I really hated to do it by myself, um, especially considering that we have two little boys that are about these same ages, and I can't imagine that my children would be taken away from me in that form, so I can only imagine the pain that these mothers felt. So, um, you know, it's just a, a terrible situation, and it's one that, you know, we have to be so thankful Again, like I said, that CODIS was available. But anyway, I want to go ahead and just um, say again to you guys that I appreciate you all so much. And I am just so honored and blessed that you guys give us such great reviews. And thank you so much for that. Um, keep encouraging your friends to listen. And um, as we get ready for our next big podcast for you guys, you know, any suggestions that you guys have, we'd love to hear about them. Uh, we'd love to be able to put some cases together that you guys are interested in. So if you want to send us some information, we're happy to do those cases for you. But other than that, I'm going to let you guys go. And so we sign off with saying, no, she didn't, but now she does. You guys be blessed. <laughs>